Welcome to the Journey Mama Writings Podcast. I'm Rachel Devonish Ford, the author of the Journey Mama blog and books, and I'm currently recording my audiobooks. I'll be releasing the Journey Mama Writings complete as audiobooks, but also here in podcast format with Hindsight, which is a section at the end of each episode where I share my thoughts on my experiences all those years ago. This is season one, where I read the book Trees Tall as Mountains, the first book in the Journey Mama Writing series. I write many kinds of fiction, including YA fantasy, inspirational romance, and literary fiction. You can find my books on journeymama.com, and you can subscribe to get my posts or writing in your inbox. This podcast episode is published by Small Seed Press and is sponsored by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash journey mama. On Patreon, my patrons receive daily poetry and other offerings, including early peeks at new books and ebooks when they are complete. I'm so thankful for them. They make everything I do possible. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and follow me at journeymama.com or on Instagram where I'm at journeymama. This is episode two. This episode is blog posts from November 2005 to March 2006 with hindsight. November. November 21st, 2005. We're back from beautiful leaf strewn Canada. Where we raked leaves into large piles and jumped in them, where we soaked in the presence of my parents and sister and brother. I love living in the trees. I'm afraid that I love it too much. I've been worried that I'm growing a bit agoraphobic lately, which I think means I'm scared of going out. Or maybe it means I'm afraid of open spaces, which I'm not. All I know is that the other day, I was almost in a panic because I was doing errands and there were too many things, too many people, people looking at me, people everywhere people looking at me with their beady eyes, buying, buying, buying. I realize I might not be entirely well. Walking into Bed Bath & Beyond almost did me in. I needed to buy a special pillow for my gimped neck. I fractured a vertebrae in my neck when Kai was an infant, and ever since, I have to be careful of what I allow my tender neck to rest upon. Unfortunately, the only place that carries the one I need is the Psycho Household Store. Have you ever been in that store? Talk about insanity. They've taken vertical storage to a whole new limit. There are 50 million types of garlic presses stacked to the ceiling. I almost started crying. I'm laughing about this now, but it was really so bad at the time that I had to do deep breathing and positive self-talk, just to keep from scratching at my face while shopping. 
I also felt this intense sleepiness, which a couple of times almost had me laid out on the floor. I didn't lie on the floor. I realized that people would find this strange. I came home to the land without buying half the things I needed. Sometimes it seems like there is too much stuff in the world, and buying stuff hurts and brings me to tears. Maybe I had a touch of the flu. I feel like hiding in the trees sometimes. And so I love living at the land, where everything is getting greener with moss by the day, even though the leaves may smother us as they fall. And a few days ago, when we were driving through the back roads of Oregon on our way home from Canada, I had the curious sensation of coming home. It was as though I saw all the variety shops and junk sellers and burlwood carvers and felt a kinship. I mean, if you're going to sell clutter, you might as well make it eccentric, eh? November 23rd, 2005. I don't know the basic essentials of sleeping anymore. It's 2 a.m., my eyes are closed, I'm breathing slowly. I'm trying to let my mind drift away. I'm not sleeping. Kai is sniffing. He's coughing. He's scratching at the eczema behind his knees. Now he's turning back and forth. Now he needs to get up to pee. I'm still not sleeping. You know, I had a very strange experience the other night when I was staying in the city with friends, without my family. I went to sleep, closed my eyes, and when I woke up, The sun was up. I almost couldn't understand what was happening. You mean I slept all the way through the night? On the same side of my body? Right now, with a mattress as thick as a piece of rice paper on a bunk bed, which causes my husband to have to crawl over my lightly sleeping body to get to his side of the bed, and little elves who snore in their beds, which are five feet away from our bed, well... I wake up about 38 times a night. This is true. Maybe not sleeping is the reason that I felt like my brain was decomposing all day. Maybe it was the fact that my husband has been sick in bed for three days, and I alternately feel terrible for him and envy him with a ferocity that is ferret-like in nature. Maybe I'm really tired, and that's why I said the D word, right Maybe I'm really tired, and that's why I said the D word when Kai peed in his jammies, right after I put him in them. He has this habit of holding his pee until he needs to relieve himself so desperately that he is jogging in place while trying to unzip his pajamas. It doesn't work very well. But is that terrible habit more terrible than saying the D word over some wet undies? Probably not. I apologize to Kai, and he asked sweetly, Are you saying sorry because you said damn it? Yes, I said. Because that's not a good word, he asked. That's right, I said. Because you shouldn't say it, he asked. And on and on until I almost said it again. December. December 8th, 2005. The other day, a girl gave me a handful of drugs. She has been living here at the land and had confessed to me that she had drugs stashed in her cabin. We walked down together to retrieve a baggie full of weed and ecstasy. I was struck by the thought that what I held in my hand equaled time in jail. 
I could almost see a thick chain attached to it. This tiny bag of trouble. What a terrible thing it would be, especially now that I have children. It was a huge relief to walk to the toilet and flush it all down. It's so freeing to have nothing to hide. There is nothing that makes me anxious when I pass a cop on the road. I may glance at my speedometer briefly, though, and no shudder in my bones when I walk through one of those thief detectors at the store. I spent years as a young teenager addicted to stealing, and as a result, walking around like a large, intense spider, never able to relax. God mercifully stepped in, and I was arrested. In the years since, I have nothing to be afraid of. The law can't touch me because all of me is visible. There is nothing hidden. It's so hard to remember, though, in my own mental illness, in my willingness to accept the guilt that descends on me daily, that really the law can't touch me. One day we will be perfect, but until then it is enough to live in the light and be honest about how wretched and small we are. It is enough to watch God, to see the way he does things and to be so happy about how good he is, because he promised that this is the way we will become pure. Sometimes I get so absolutely sick of my own brain. All the writhing and complaining, the neurosis, the litany of put-downs that come toward me. I get sick of battling myself, my fears, my shame. It is good to know that my heart is always safe with God, because there is nothing waiting at the other end of my confessions but love. December 10th, 2005 there are some days when I feel as though I've been picked up and cradled like a little baby. And there are days when I feel as though I'm forced to walk when I would rather be carried. Wonderfully, today is one of the former. God has been breathing fresh, beautiful air in our direction in the midst of a few trials. I've been a receiver so many times of things that I haven't deserved, and I need to express how amazing it always is. When we were in Canada, my sister threw a party for us in one of her busiest times. My parents have given us so much, I always feel I have to be stern with them if they want to give us more. My friend Laura rushes around her house to find more and more clothing that she has that she thinks just might look cute on me when I haven't even seen her in four years. Christy bought me glasses when my glasses were so broken they wouldn't stay on my face, and I was so broke I just kept putting them back on. Heather watched our kids for free so that my superstar husband and I could take pictures at a wedding. People let us use their houses when they go away. People let us borrow their cars when we don't have one to drive. Dory thinks I can do no wrong, and I just need someone like that in my life. Don't you? Elena gives me her magazines when she's done with them, feeds my fish when I'm away, and always manages to find something for my kids when she's thrift shopping. Megan and Mark bought me a scented candle just like theirs because I was always exclaiming over how much I loved the smell. Our friends Evelyn and Stephen call us to see if we're going to be staying at their house in the city anytime soon, just in case we didn't want to impose. They want to make sure we have a place to stay while we are there. Crystal gives me little baggies of chocolate if I'm going away for the day. 
Lavon opens up her house for me to have time alone just to sit and be still. Renee and Eddie beg me to play settlers with them. Many people nudge me out of my shell. People slip us little wadded up pieces of money when they think no one's looking. Hundreds of people have given Chinua and I encouragement. Many people have affirmed this blog. Our lives are so enriched by the people around us that it's breathtaking. Lately, life has been a little hard. I've been battling my emotions again, breathing deeply to avoid panic more often than I would like. The newest update on the lump is that it is quite possibly cancer and needs to be removed as soon as possible, but after the baby is born. If they find cancer when they remove it, they'll take my whole thyroid out, which is a health issue that involves using thyroid medication for the rest of my life. I think about a new baby, a surgery, two older children who are not quite two and three years old, some misunderstandings and conflict with really close friends, and renovations on the house that we probably won't be able to move into for about another month, and I'm a little overwhelmed. But I want Christmas to be beautiful, and I want to look forward to my muffin's birth, not anticipate the surgery afterward. This is why having friends step in again and love us is so good, and why yesterday, after I drove back to the land fairly exhausted, It was amazing to find a huge box of beautifully wrapped gifts that had been delivered. Our friends, Levi and Jesse, wanted to bless us for Christmas. It is maybe the most caring, kindest thing that anyone has done for us in a long time. And that's saying a lot. These are the things that I want to remember when my mind turns against me and I grow suspicious and wary. I want to remember all this love around us that swells like an ocean. December 10th, 2005. Just to elaborate on a brief mention of lump yesterday, here's the scoop. My surgeon is a six foot four inches Greek man. He wants me to call him Pete. So we will. Pete sat beside me for an hour and read all of the reports to me, word for word, explaining every piece of confusing terminology. He let me know that he had requested a larger amount of time with me than usual, with no interruptions, because of the sensitive nature of my case. Pete drew me a ton of diagrams on that scratchy, crumply paper that they roll out on the exam table and then ripped it off for me to take home to show Chinua. All of this is very wonderful and a little frightening as well. I'm thinking, why does he want to spend so much time with me? Is it because my case is so bad? In reality, it's only because they would usually go ahead and remove something like this right away, just because of the medium probability of thyroid cancer. Pete said it was anywhere from a 1 in 10 chance to a 1 in 4 chance. What? He gave me the choice, but he doesn't want to operate on me until the baby is born. Fine by me. I'm not that worried, seeing as I've had this thing for five years now. I've been told several times now that if I had to ask God for cancer, 
I should ask for thyroid cancer because it's so easily treated and 96% curable. Whenever I'm telling anyone about this, I always say 99% curable because it sounds better. It seems to me that what they're saying is that it's better to lose a toe than a finger. And who asks for cancer? Anyone? No? But I hear from my mom that Synthroid is great stuff, and she should know, since she's been using it for almost 30 years. Actually, I seem to recall her getting great bursts of energy from time to time while I was growing up. Or maybe that was the coffee. I actually feel really good about all this right now. God is giving me shots of grace, and I'm happy to be alive and making Christmas cookies with Kai today. He's the best help ever. Kenya? Not so helpful. Good at licking the spoon that I just scooped the baking powder with, though, to her extreme disgust, and good at scooping great handfuls of batter in her mouth even when I tell her to stop? Yes, she's good at that. I gave them both a beater to lick yesterday and felt really and truly like a mom. What I really want to know is whether they can do a two-in-one and take my wisdom teeth out at the same time. One is poking through, and I think they could save money on anesthesia if they just took lump and the teeth out at the same time. December 23rd, 2005. Kai. Let's run to the restaurant together, Mama. Your baby wants to run. Me, smiling. Um, my baby is making my body too heavy for me to run. Kai. But he wants to run. Me. Well, he's going to have to wait a while for that because it's going to kill me to run right now. Kai, shaking his head with his hand on his forehead. I just don't know about this baby and a mama who won't run. I've been so happy all day because it is as balmy as spring here and sunny too. This is after it rained so long and hard that the river rose until I thought it would just meander right up to our cabin and take us away. Where to, I wonder? Maybe it would be an adventure. Rain makes me feel like I have to slouch. Like the sky is closing in on me. As much as I appreciate the green, tender little shoots of fern and grass that it brings with it. We already live in a forested valley, so we see little enough of the sky as it is. It is wonderful to have sun and light. In the past nine years, I've only had two Christmases in Canada, which means that seven of them have been without snow. I'm moving to the other side now. Snow? Who needs snow? We don't have snow, but I did get the kids stockings. I am more excited than I've been for a long time about when they'll open them. Bright and early Christmas morning. None of this midnight the night before nonsense for us. Paul, one of the guys in our community, has been watching the song This Beautiful Day or On a Day Like Today, something like that, by Donovan on the Brother Son Sister Moon movie over and over again for days. He puts it on so it will minister to us. I think it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. He'll run into the room, rewind it to the beginning of the song. Yes, it's VHS. Watch it and then run back out of the room without saying anything to anyone, leaving me and the other occupants of the room staring blankly at each other. As I said to Derek the other day, 
As challenging as life can be around here, we never run out of entertainment. I had a spastic get-everything-done-at-once day today and cleaned the big house as well as doing about eight loads of land laundry and cooking my famous chicken soup. Okay, not that famous, with homemade noodles for supper. Go pregnant girl. I think I'm getting close to the end now, as a super crazy burst of energy can tell. Although my burst of energy with Kai was still weeks off. I just want this yummy baby to be born so I can kiss his face and milky mouth. Chinua has also been doing some therapeutic cleaning as he continues to sort through the garage. Today it was buckets of assorted nails. Sounds a little neurotic to me, although my dear husband is anything but neurotic. December 29th, 2005. Will someone please come over here and give me a good conk on the head with the blunt object? Please. Really, I'm serious. Not because we got back to the land and we have no running water. Not because the mountain has fallen on the road in a giant landslide, ten miles north of us again, effectively blocking us from the hospital and everything useful. Not even because of the day and night of false labor that I had yesterday. Well, actually, kind of because of that. Mostly because contractions kept waking me up all night, and each time I finally managed to fall back to sleep, I woke up again thinking, oh yeah, now I finally really slept. But then I would look at the clock and see that, wow, gee, it's only been half an hour. Not only that, but I had the stupidest song from a Saturday Night Live skit in my head, and each time I woke, it was there afresh, in full strength. And I developed a fear that all the hot water tanks were going to explode because they didn't have enough water in them. I was especially concerned for the one in the restaurant, because not only would it be a bad thing for the whole restaurant to burn down, but our friends who are traveling in India are storing all their worldly possessions in the same room that the water heater resides in. You can see why, after a certain point, I longed for a simple concussion. It was like my own personal psychotic merry-go-round. I'm still here today and trying my very hardest for a good day. In candle therapy, this is a five-candle day. Maybe we should try seven. How about some hot chocolate? Yep. Soft socks? Yes. Lots of praying? Lots of timeouts by myself in the bathroom when the kids have driven me to the very brink? Really, though, I'm the one driving. They're no different than any other day. So I know it must be me and my sleep-deprived brain. Who needs water anyways? I mean, we have plenty of river water. The road's out, so the water... The road's out. The water's gone. But we're so hardcore here, it doesn't even phase us. Yeah. My poor superstar husband is probably belly button deep in a waterfall right now trying to fix whatever went wrong with the pipes. God is always good to us, although we are in the midst of a cold, wet land winter with water problems. When the summer comes, we'll be sitting by the river, soaking in the late evening sun. It's something to keep in mind. January. January 1st, 2006. 
1. Highway 101 going north closed until further notice due to mudslides. Open no sooner than Tuesday. 2. Highway 101 going south closed until further notice due to flooding. They're just not talking about it until Monday. 3. Highway 1 closed south of Fort Bragg. No electricity in Fort Bragg. 4. We are stuck. No going south or north. We could go west, but they have no power. 5. No water. Today was day 4. No hope of water until further notice. No hope of water until other guys come to help us, but they can't get here until the roads are open, obviously. 6. We thankfully have power. Apparently all of Leggett is without power except for us and the Peg House, a convenience store to the south. Yay! Power! Let's focus on our blessings. Happy New Year! January 3rd, 2006. And we have water again. We got it back approximately an hour before the superstar husband and kids and I left the land to visit with my parents at their timeshare. We were only six days without water. No problem. But actually it's like the saying, water, water everywhere and nowhere a drop to drink, because really we had lots of water. We had a whole river that was coming closer by the minute, threatening to carry us away, plus a creek, plus the rain that just kept falling. But we're 21st century wimps who don't like hauling water. I should say 21st century North American wimps, because I've been in plenty of places where they haul water every day. Like Nepal, where they carry extra enormous loads of things balanced on their backs by a strap on their foreheads. I think it's for effect. I mean, Nepali people are mostly tiny. I can't tell you the number of times I cracked my head on a doorway in Nepal because it was just too short, and I couldn't seem to remember that I should bend double to get through. So it really is stunning to see a Nepali man who is half the size of you because you're an inch away from six feet tall and a giantess in the land of Nepal, running down the road with a refrigerator three times the size of him strapped to his forehead, dodging a few dogs and the giant bull lying in the street. I am not exaggerating. The worst is when you are trekking in the Himalayas and you never ever thought that you were so incredibly out of shape, but now you are thinking over and over, please someone just kill me now as you climb stair after stair and all those porters keep skipping past you up the hill barefoot with piles of bricks tied to their foreheads, smiling cheerfully at you as they call out, Namaste, every time, Namaste, to every single trekker. Once my superstar husband and I, when he was just my superstar boyfriend, saw a group of Sherpa porters taking turns carrying an elderly woman up the mountain to medical help. She was also sitting in a basket, which was resting on one of the porter's backs, tied to his forehead. I guess you can bear a lot of weight that way or something. The point is, we are so civilized that it kills us to haul a little water. 
That knowledge doesn't keep me from being very, very happy that I, one, had a shower today, two, gave my kids a bath, and three, may sneak into the hot tub at my parents' timeshare condo tonight. If we had kept on without any water, I may have been forced to do my laundry in the river, like I've seen people do in the Ganga in India, although it probably would have taken all my clothes away, rushing the way it is. Where did our lovely lady river go? Our pretty green darling? She's gone, and a monstrous mud torrent has replaced her. One thing I saw a few days ago that I have never seen before? Three kayakers cheerfully being swept along. They must have been out of their gourds, as my superstar husband commented, seconds before he yelled out to them, You're all gonna die! Yee-haw! One of them yelled back. January 10th, 2006. Really, if I had any more contractions, I'd probably just explode. I'm torn between just wanting to have this little muffin baby so all this can be over and wanting just a few more full nights of sleep. Not that I really sleep all that well. My new birth plan is to go to the hospital right before I need to push, which will force them to simply catch the baby and we can skip over all the drama. This plan was formed after I was kidnapped and held hostage, strapped to the monitor for two hours while I was forced to listen to my baby's heartbeat in stereo. I love to hear my baby's heartbeat, don't get me wrong, but something's gotta be off when I'm talking to my dad on the phone and he asks, who's doing construction over there? And I have to reply that I'm actually sitting and tapping my feet to the rhythm of my unborn child's heart. It seems a little like stalking. All I wanted was to have my cervix checked. A strange request, but because of my endless days of contractions and the fact that I happened to be near the hospital, I thought it might be good to see if I had advanced at all. I've been walking around at two centimeters. But they couldn't just check my cervix. I should have known better. No, not even to darken the hospital door until transition. But I didn't get it until I saw the nurse avoiding my eyes when I asked if I could leave. I'm not in labor, I tried to insist. I really know I'm not. Trust me. She seemed to think I was going to have the baby on the side of Highway 101 in Weot. Something I would totally never do. Maybe in Meyer's flat, but never we ought. That's when I found out their protocol. Two hours of monitoring if you even think about being in labor. I was pretty furious, since I really believe that I know my body better than anybody. But not wanting to get the bad patient rap before the big day even comes, I sat like a lamb and drank apple juice through a straw and listen to the washing machine hammering that is keeping my baby alive. So I'll go right at the end, push the baby out, and then the nurses can bring me warm blankets and food. Everyone will be happy. January 24th, 2006. I haven't left my cabin since I got home from the hospital on Saturday, but today I finally emerged, just for a minute. Soon I'll be creeping back to the relative peace of my little room, 
The last few days have been pretty momentous and intense, and my parents have been absolute angels, taking the kids out so they can get all their crazy energy out while I bond with my little baby. Salif was born on January 20th at 4.41 in the afternoon. He weighed 8 pounds, 6 ounces, and was 19 and a half inches long. He is beautiful and sweet, and the kids love him, and I am so happy and sad and overjoyed and in despair. I cry a lot. But I have a lot of people who love me all around me and know that this crazy mess of hormones will only last a while. January 28, 2006. The other night, Janua put the big kids to bed so that I could do some writing. When I got Kenya out of her crib the next morning, she was wearing a shirt that says, I'm the big brother. When I looked at Chinua with a question in my eyes, he said, I just thought it was funny. We're doing okay. By okay, I mean that I alternate between feeling like I can't do this at all, I'm going to go crazy and die, this meaning take care of these three little kids in our little cabin, in the rain that pours down day after day without ceasing, and feeling like I am a superwoman. I can do anything. I'm so extremely ecstatic about life, and yes, I feel great. This type of flip-flop is something I plan to work on in this year of freedom. I experienced fairly intense depression after having Kai in Kenya. I've read that postpartum depression is more likely to occur if you have a history of it. Mine has generally lasted the entire time I've breastfed my babies, I got pregnant with Kenya when Kai was 10 months old and still nursing, so there was no break there. And then after weaning Kenya, I suddenly felt like myself again. The old Ray, the one who doesn't become overwhelmed easily, doesn't fall into despair over small things. I became pregnant with Leafy about two weeks later, and hormones once again flooded my life. Looking into the coming year has had me feeling scared to return to the way I felt after having both of my other kids. That's why I have been inspired to name it my year of freedom, thinking that maybe walking beside God through some of the battlefields of my mind will have me freer at the end. I've learned a few tricks since I had Kenya, like not making my husband into the enemy in my mind. Or like being silent when all that wants to come out of my mouth is a tirade of panic and distress. Or being more gentle with my kids when I am feeling particularly fragile. Or letting myself be loved by God when I feel the worst and hate myself for it. So rather than being so extreme in thinking that things will either be perfect or they'll fall apart, today I'll just say, that my house is cluttered, and my kids are joyful, and my husband loves me, and I have a headache, and my baby is amazing, and he slept well last night, and I'm tired but happy, and I forgot to brush my teeth this morning, and rain is good because it makes the crops grow, but boy, can it be depressing. February February 4th, 2006. The leaf baby has found his voice, and he is using it. 
Rather than making sweet little grunts and squeaks, now when he wakes up, he yells something in baby speak that sounds to me like, Feed me now, milkwoman. I try to tell him gently to say please, but even after I remind him a few times, he sometimes forgets. We're doing pretty well, even though we have thrush. Thrush just like that, in all caps. Leafs is pretty much taken care of now, thanks to the wonders of grapefruit seed extract. 10 to 15 drops in an ounce of water swabbed on a baby's tongue works way better than Nystatin sugar junk. And my left breast is fine, but when Leaf nurses on my right breast, it feels like he's sucking out sand rather than milk. It really is too painful to even write about any longer, so that's all I'm going to say about our thrush. Except that I've dealt with it with two other babies, and I know that this too shall pass. He's very sweet and smells like milk. He looks like a combination of his brother and sister and someone else entirely different, whom I guess would be him. And sometimes I slip and call him by his brother's name. Today, Chinua said, Kai, what did your mama say about what you're not supposed to do when she's nursing Kai? No wonder our oldest can be confused sometimes. The answer, of course, although I'm nursing Leaf, not Kai, is that the two other little people are not supposed to touch the baby while he's nursing. This is purely for sanity's sake, although there's little enough of that around here. Not touching him includes not wrinkling up his forehead or kissing his cheeks or sticking their fingers in his nostrils. And it especially includes not leaning on either of my breasts with their pointy little elbows in order to bend down and smother the baby with attention while I yelp in pain. The phrase most often spoken around here now, the baby is not a toy, which is why you two can't rock his car seat back and forth really fast or touch his eyes or put blankets on him or mess with him at all. They are really good at holding him though, except for Kenya's tendency to push him away when she's had enough. One good reason never to completely let go of the baby when you are letting a toddler hold him or Kai's sudden freakish impulse to try to turn him upside down. Another good reason. They do well. They really, really love him, which makes all my hypervigilance worth it. February 10th, 2006. I had a lot of big ideas about how much writing I would be able to do once I gave birth to my baby. Being pregnant made me so tired that by the time the kids were in bed, it was all I could do to drag my sorry self to the big house and blog for a while. And it took up so much creative energy to form a little person that I lost all inspiration for writing the novel that I've been working on for about a year now. Or I should say, was working on, until I was about three months pregnant with the leaf baby and then just couldn't force myself to work on it anymore. With every pregnancy, creativity has gone down the drain. And then as soon as I have the baby, I'm overflowing with ideas and inspiration again. The only problem is, well, let me put it this way. When I get around to brushing my teeth regularly again, I'll let you know. Right now, I'm typing this with one hand while I jiggle a fussy baby with the other. That said, I still have a ton of hope for future writing. I've actually started thinking about my book again. The characters, 
different things I want to change, and either all the awards I'll win when it's published to great acclaim, or how humiliated I'm going to feel when no one wants to publish it and I have to pay to get one miserable copy made at Kinko's. Yes, I flip-flop a bit. No more flip-flopping, Ray, remember? The other day, Chinua and I ran away with the kids for the day in our new van. We drove out through the redwoods to the beach, and it took us hours and hours because of having to stop to feed the baby and change the baby and feed the kids and, oh, we need gas, and finally we made it to the beach just in time for the magic hour of light that turns everything into gold. And all I wanted to do was write about it. On the beach, we met a kind, dry-humored man with an English accent who invited us over to his house to see the rammed earth structure that he had in his beautiful garden. We took him up on his invitation and made a new friend. We saw his garden, which was filled with all kinds of sculptures. And all I wanted to do was write about it. The fact that I feel inspired is worth so, so much to me. One day I'll figure out how to combine inspiration with time management, and then I'll really be cracking. Until then, it's almost enough to sit and daydream about painting and stories while I nurse my baby and enjoy it, remembering that he won't be this small for long. He's pretty amazing. Today some of my friends had a little tea party, welcome baby party for me, and we had tea and scones and itty-bitty yummy sandwiches. There were two other gorgeous babies there, and it really struck me how amazing it is that God formed a mother's heart to be captured by her baby, because no matter how cute I think those other babies are, I really have eyes only for Leaf, and he's the one who goes everywhere with me, so of course that's the way it should be. And I know it's the same with the other mothers there. No matter how much we ooh and awe over other people's kids, in our hearts, we all know that ours are the best. February 15th, 2006. I fell off the wagon yesterday, backslid a bit. The thing is, lately I can almost feel my will to even move flowing out of me along with my milk. I can feel a swirl of hormones from my toes to my eyeballs, sweeping my sanity along with them. I stare off into space without seeing. So I broke a few rules yesterday about not making Chinua the enemy, not speaking when only toxic waste will come out, and not beating myself up for small things over and over. It was a terrible day. It probably was sparked by the fact that Chinua forgot it was Valentine's Day. Big deal, right? I mean, he's not known for his memory of these kinds of things. I know this. I was pretty sure that he wouldn't remember, but I didn't remind him because part of me was hoping that maybe he had some big thing planned or some great gift to give me. And I felt like I needed something like that. Life has been a little hectic lately. But I have no call to feel like a tragedy queen over my husband forgetting Valentine's Day because... One, I was almost positive that he would forget. Two, I married a man who is forgetful, and it's not a crime to be forgetful. Three, I chose not to remind him. And four, I know that he loves me. 
See, I do know because I have friends who remind me that I have pretty much everything I could want. I'm working at meaningful things in a community I love. I'm surrounded by good friends and I live in a beautiful place. I'm married to a superstar who loves me and I have three great kids. I know this, I really do. I know that I'm not lonely. I know that Valentine's Day doesn't even matter because I'll never spend another one alone. Although I did spend yesterday bickering with the love of my life. But man, what I wouldn't give for a little loneliness sometimes. I'm like a magnet. If I'm sitting on one cushion of the couch, nursing the baby, then I have two little friends, one on either side of me, on the same cushion of the couch. No space. There are space issues in our home. I'm going to start a new show called Everyone Needs Mama. As in, everyone needs mama to hug them. Everyone needs mama to feed them, clothe them, wipe the poo off their bums, and most of all, everyone needs mama to be happy and sane. I know that this is great, that it's wonderful to be needed, that I'm very blessed. But the result is that one thought doesn't follow another very well in my head anymore. I'm starting to lose brain cells. And I'm writing this at 4 a.m. because I just finished feeding the baby who pooped all over my pajamas. And I have no time to write during any normal hours. In a minute, I'll try to still my mind and go back to sleep. So I was raging mad yesterday because I had been talking about how much I loved Target. And Chinua suggested that my ravings were a little, well, ghetto. Low quality, like Ray? Aren't you settling a bit? I probably should have realized that he wasn't saying that I'm low quality or that I just have terrible taste or low standards, but it set me off because doesn't he realize that the things I get excited about now are diapers on clearance? When was the last time I bought clothing for myself? I think I bought a pair of pants last Christmas, you know? So Target is a great store because when you have little means, and three children, you look for bargains everywhere. On necessities. Chinua totally saw this, of course, but I still made a rabid issue out of it. Poor husband. Seriously, I was not fun to be around. Part of that was probably my stress over meeting with the surgeon yesterday, which was the reason Chinua and I were out together at all. He came to be with me at my last appointment before I have the surgery, to remove lump and half my thyroid, which is in two weeks. He is totally supportive and understanding. Even so, a little sulky part of me feels like I'm in this alone, like no one really gets how hard this is for me. I'll probably write more about the upcoming surgery since there are so many emotions running around inside me over it. On a cheerful note, Leaf is turning into an absolute doll. He was so sweet yesterday, giving me those great open-mouthed smiles that are almost more vertical than horizontal, with a little scrunched-up nose. And Kenya peed in the potty for the very first time yesterday. My mom was the one there for the celebratory moment. And then, even though I was such lame company all day, after the kids were in bed, my superstar husband gave me an amazing massage with this intense cordless massage thing. 
My old war injury, the fracture that I have in my neck from an old car accident, was acting up, like it always does when I'm under the weather. My old war injury is very painful, an irritation, perhaps the equivalent of someone slapping me in the face repeatedly all day, and then telling me to act happy. Chinua helped me out with the 38 huge knots in my neck, and I went to sleep blissfully. So maybe it was a good Valentine's Day, after all. February 18th, 2006. Kenya made a nice little poo in the potty this morning, and we had a party for her afterwards, with singing and dancing and animal cookies. On her part, I think she was a little puzzled about what the big deal was. Kenya's simple like that. She said she needed to poo, and then she did. So what? Why all the hysteria? That's one poo and one pee. We still haven't gotten down to any serious training. We're just sitting her down occasionally if she has her diaper off, or if she mentions that she might have to go. So today, before she got in the bath, she acted distressed and yelled, Potty! So I let her sit there while I bathed Kai in our storage bin that we are using as a bathtub. And when she yelled, Done! I ignored her at first, and then when she persisted, I poked my head around the corner, and there it was, a neat little turd in the potty bowl. Ah, heaven. My surgery is set for March 1st. Chinua and I met with the surgeon the other day, and he explained the procedure again as thoroughly as you could desire. The only new information to me was that they are going to go ahead and take the left half of my thyroid out to get the lump out without too much scar tissue forming. Pete, the surgeon, says that the other half of my thyroid will do all the work for my body. This seems to be the way in many things. If you cut an inchworm in half, they go ahead as normal. If you're a mama sleeping half as much as you usually do, you just keep on as if you were getting a whole night's sleep. I wonder if the half of my thyroid that's left will get tired. Will it quit one day? I haven't yet Googled thyroid surgery to research it to death yet. Don't worry, I will. There is only one major risk with this type of surgery, and even it is not so major. The nerve that controls my voice box is right behind my thyroid, and there is a chance that they could damage it. Pete the surgeon says he's never done it. But if he did, and there's always a chance, he pointed out my voice would be a little damaged. Damaged? My superstar husband wanted to know. How so? Well, said Pete the surgeon, have you ever seen The Godfather? He left off with a meaningful pause. Right. So, if the thought of having a scar that looks like I've gone over the deep end and slit my throat isn't enough to bother me, then the idea of sounding like a female Marlon Brando might. If I would even sound like a female Marlon Brando, Maybe he was saying that I would sound like Marlon Brando as he is, male and old. Maybe I'll keep my fingers crossed for a sexy husky damage rather than a godfather damage. Or maybe no damage at all. Just not a pathetic I can't call my kids anymore or yell at them so they get away with everything damage. Not a people falling to the floor laughing at my silly rasp damage. The next step during the surgery, after they remove the left half of my thyroid with the lump attached, is when they rush it off to pathology to look for cancer. 
Then, if they find no cancer, just meaningless lumpage, they sew me back up and I get my scar for keeps. And the right half of my thyroid. But if they find cancer, so long right half of my thyroid, I will be thyroid-less, and I will have to use Synthroid, which is not a big deal compared to cancer. The only problem is that I will have to go for four to six weeks without any thyroid medication at all, so they can check me for more cancer. In Pete the surgeon's words, I will be miserable. He said that Chinua would crawl to him on hands and knees, asking him to put me out of my misery, or something to that effect. He said that my brain will be screaming for the synthroid, and that I will be depressed and gaining weight with no energy. It sounds a lot like pregnancy to me. Times a thousand. This worries me. I mean, I'm not going to cross that bridge until I come to it. But if you tell a girl who's already struggling with her emotions and low energy level that you might have to take away her normal hormones, which help her with feeling even as good as she does, she might worry just a little bit. But all that aside, I'm not that anxious. The biggest thing I worry about, my dread of receiving an IV. I think I will faint. I think I will punch the nurse. I think I will throw up. I am such a wimp over needles, and a small part of me does want to throw myself to the ground and refuse to do anything anymore, because don't you know I might be dying? February 26, 2006. I watched Born into Brothels the other day and was taken right back to India. It was an amazing movie, a documentary shot in Kolkata about a woman who gave cameras to the children of prostitutes living in the red light district. She taught them how to take photographs, and they took beautiful and haunting pictures of things around them. They were so wise for their years, wise and innocent in the worst of situations. Some of the footage was the best I've seen of India, capturing the chaos and beauty that exists there. It made me remember the first time I landed in New Delhi and the way I immediately felt overwhelmed by the problems of India. I was 18 and had never been outside of North America. Everywhere I looked, there was sadness. People, babies with hands outstretched. My friend Christy and I decided to wash the feet of some of the street kids one night, right after we arrived on the streets of Delhi. We bought a bucket and some soap, probably for a few cents, and squatted next to the dutter to wash some of the dirtiest tiny feet that we had ever seen. We eventually had to leave because some men were bothering us, but feet washing became one way we had of breaking our sadness wide open and doing something that caused people to wonder. Jesus washed his disciples' feet before he died. He must have been overwhelmed by everything he saw. Sick people angry people, and so he made a statement by making dirty feet clean. In India, where bare feet are cracked and dirty, it meant something like what it would have meant to the disciples. It's not much, but it's care, it's touch, it's tenderness. Sometimes tenderness is the last thing people receive, but something they need desperately. We did it again at a rainbow gathering at the Kumbh Mela, the largest Hindu gathering ever held, 
and the largest religious gathering ever held on earth. It was chaos, dust and noise. We were overwhelmed again by the futility of 80 million people trying to leave an endless wheel of punishment by washing in a certain river on a certain day. <clears throat> we found out later that 100,000 old widows were abandoned by their families there by the river. Slowing their families down, they were just left. We felt oppressed and tired, and we used water on dusty feet again to fight back with a small spark. I remember that it was something that my friend Christy always did while we traveled. She would talk about overcoming evil with good while she sat cross-legged on her bed in our guesthouse room, making small, beautiful things for people that she met. She took verses from the Bible and wrote them on pretty paper with butterflies or flowers, the size to fit in someone's palm. And so we wove our way across India, fighting to break open the sense of defeat that often followed us, Christie's butterflies sown in every town we visited, overcome evil with good. It is something I think of now. Not that things around me are truly evil, but sometimes life can be dull or wearying or discouraging. Sometimes I can remember to fight back by sowing something beautiful into hard times. That's what this blog can be about for me writing a story to keep from feeling victimized by life. You can look at life in so many ways. It can be poor me or rich me. The worst thing in the world is feeling like a victim. What could be worse than feeling like you have no control over your life? I heard recently that only in remembering that our lives are being written into a larger story can we take the mundane things that keep coming minute by minute. I want to be the kind of person who invites a lonely person over when I'm feeling lonely, rather than waiting for someone to call. Or to be like Christy, sitting cross-legged on a hard bed in one of the most intense places on earth, making beautiful gifts for lonely people. February 28, 2006 I have a hard time knowing how to answer sometimes when people ask me how I'm feeling about the surgery that I'm having tomorrow. I don't always know how I feel. It seems all mixed up with what I want to feel and what I should feel and what I feel when I'm well rested with a full belly compared to 3 a.m. with a rumbling tummy and a crying baby. But my dreams show me things. I've dreamed of doctors and nurses yelling at me in one dream, they were prepping me for the IV, and I told them to wait because I was still pumping milk, and then I knocked the bottle over, and it was glass, and it shattered. The nurse turned to me and said, it would serve you right if you just died. I dreamed that I was in a motorcycle accident, and I came in crying and tried to tell Chinua. He and Derek were talking, and they turned to me, and Chinua said, why are you always so dramatic? Derek said, Stop looking for attention. I dreamed I was driving down a steep hill, and even with all my weight on the brake, I couldn't slow down. I dreamed that I lost Kenya in a crowd, and I spent the whole night frantically looking for her. I dreamed that I screamed at Kai. I dreamed that I got mad at my parents and yelled at them for no reason. 
I dreamed that we were in our old house at the flat in San Francisco, and I went upstairs, and our landlord was moving us out without telling us. All our stuff was in boxes, and we had nowhere to go. I dreamed that I fell out of a window with the leaf baby, and the glass went everywhere, and someone caught me by the ankle just as I caught leaf by the ankle. We stopped right before we hit the pavement. I guess I am a little scared inside. March. March 4th, 2006. There's bad news and good news. The bad news is that I look a little like Frankenstein. My friend Amy brought up the fact that in the movie Young Frankenstein, the woman who is in love with Frankenstein calls him Zipperneck. This is what I prefer to be called from now on. The good news is that I am not dead. You don't even really want to think about dying, actually, going into surgery. It seems morbid and negative. But I cried when I kissed Kenya goodbye because my biggest fear was the idea of my kids not having a mama. Of course, the surgery was actually very safe. And Pete, the surgeon, told me that chances were higher that I'd die on the way to the operation than in the operation. But still... You don't want to think those things, but you do when your life is in someone's hands. You know, the way it is when someone is carving at your neck with a sharp knife while you're knocked out and helpless under bright lights. I was really woozy about the IV, and it didn't help that the nurse had to try three times before she got it in. My superstar husband was trying to distract me by talking about the beads in my hair. That's a really pretty one, Ray. I've never seen it before. Where'd you get it? Did Jared give it to you? He's really good at giving people gifts. I was following slightly, but most of me was over with the nurse, totally grossed out by the fact that she was sticking sharp objects into my veins. The anesthesiologist showed up with a five o'clock shadow at seven in the morning, and he was one of those guys who has a thick patch of chest hair peeking out over his scrubs. He told me about all the terrible things he was going to do, like give me a breathing tube after I was asleep. Why tell me? It's not like I'm going to know. But they treated me like a star, wheeling me down to the operating room while different nurses that I know in the hospital, from labor and delivery or my pre-op appointments, waved at me and wished me luck. And then I slowly lost consciousness. Regaining consciousness in the operating room was one of the strangest experiences that I've had. I was lying there totally out of it while people all around me talked about me. Oh, here she is. She's really sleepy. How about some morphine? Do you want some morphine? I'm going to put some special stockings on you to keep you from getting a blood clot. Oh, are you very tall? These stockings are so short on her, Betty. Do you think that's okay? She must be very tall. She is. She's 5'11" presumably reading my chart. Yes, she's tall. More morphine? How are you feeling? Meanwhile, I was fading in and out, and I assume I was making some sort of response to all the questions, but it seemed to come from a place that was very far away. The day was a haze of sleepiness and throwing up. I faded in and out while nursing, while talking, and in between bouts of narcolepsy managed to throw up everything I ate including pain medication. It wasn't the most fun I've ever had. I'd even say that I never want to do it again. 
but I did watch a Project Runway marathon, which was a bonus. Leaf was amazing the whole time. He drank my milk from a bottle obediently while I was in surgery. He lay and kicked his legs in the bassinet that the nurses borrowed from labor and delivery, looking like a gigantic six-week-old newborn with a terrifyingly large head. He's already so much bigger than when he was born. I threw up in a little yellow tub. Although one time I was nursing Leaf and I told a nurse that I felt really nauseous, she quickly walked out of the room to look for anti-nausea medication for me. It was a little late for anti-nausea medication. I vainly tried to call her back and then was forced to lean over the side of the bed and let it out all over the floor. It was that or on the baby. Then came nighttime and the android nurse, who lacked emotion entirely. She had no sympathy. She treated me like a drug addict every time I asked her for pain medication. What level is your pain? Um, a seven? Is it really a seven? Are you crying? Okay, it's a six? Can, please, can I have something before I freak out? She gave Chinua a booby-trapped reclining chair to sleep in. It was made in 1951 and snapped shut violently every time he shifted, giving him whiplash and waking the baby up. He ended up sleeping on the floor with his legs in the bathroom and the, his head by the foot of my bed, since our room was the size of a postage stamp. He snored terribly and I couldn't wake him up. The nurses must have heard something like this. Chinua! 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 Finally, I inched my pathetic, wounded self down to the end of the bed and started smacking him with a pillow to try to get him to stop. Then my IV bag ran out, and the machine started beeping. After about a million beeps, Android nurse came in and asked, Is something beeping in here? She sounded upset, and I couldn't help wondering whether she thought I had brought something from home that made terrible beeping noises just to annoy her. Both Chinua and I had close to the worst nights of our lives. Finally, at about 4.30, I was able to hold some pain meds down, and I actually slept. After that, everything got better. We left the next day, but not before I nearly passed out while Pete the surgeon took my stitches out and made some remarks about how I shouldn't play tackle football and take a helmet to the neck. Thanks for the word picture, Pete. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm sore, and I have to move my whole body instead of swiveling my neck. But thanks to the miracle of pain meds, it's not too bad. We're still waiting to hear back about whether or not it's cancer, but they're mostly sure that it's not. All I can say is it better not be, because they are going to have to drag me kicking and screaming if I have to go back. I can't believe the love and support I have around me right now, though. This winter has been a bit rough, and this is the culmination. But people are so loving. God is so loving. March 4th, 2006. We have decided to stop combing Kenya's hair. The reasons are numerous, but most of all because she will have the prettiest head of dreadlocks that any of us has, have ever seen. A close runner-up reason is because I have spent more time now doing Kenya's hair than I have spent on my own hair in my whole entire life. I just have to ask myself, is this quality time? 
The fact that she is often screaming and crying and throwing herself on the ground, and if she could cuss, she would, suggests not. I know that my blended race daughter is only experiencing what young black girls all around the world experience. Super kinky, hard to deal with hair, but fortunately in this family we love dreadlocks. I have them, Chinua has them, and now Kenya will have them. Her hair is perfect for dreadies. I will probably miss the little braids and twists and all that, but adding a newborn to the mix has shifted me over to the locked up side. Elena pointed out that I will be saving a ton of time by letting her hair dread up. It's true that I probably spend half an hour on it every day, time that I will now spend picking up toys. Those feet-stabbing dinosaurs are a big pet peeve. The other big piece of news around here, other than the fact that I really don't like this hole in my neck and can't wait for it to heal, is that yesterday my superstar husband bought his airplane ticket for Turkey. A member of this family is going on a journey, a long and far away journey. He'll be gone for three weeks in April, and he almost reconsidered when it hit him that the kids will change while he's gone, especially the little leaf baby. We'll miss him, but I'm so glad that it's settled that he's going. He needs it, you know. He's headed for a peace gathering, and it's going to be a raging adventure. March 6, 2006. Today I slipped into feeling a little sorry for myself. A little like I'm going to die because this wound in my neck hurts and it itches like crocodile pants. And my daughter just punched me right smack in the middle of it. Everywhere I went, because I stupidly went into public places today, I was sure that people were staring at me and thinking that I was a psycho drug addict. Did you see 28 Days and the guy who gave himself a tracheotomy? I thought that they were assuming that I was like that guy. I became very suspicious. I thought everyone felt sorry for me. I wore this scarf around my neck so that people wouldn't have to look at my unpleasant two-inch gash, but it bothered me so I kept taking it off and then putting it back on because I felt people looking and plotting about how to get me back into the mental ward. Why didn't you just stay home, you may be wondering. And that would be a good question. I guess I never know when enough is enough. I thought that all I had to worry about was my energy level, which actually hasn't been all that bad. I didn't realize that after surgery I would feel so vulnerable, that I would feel like hiding. I feel opened up and exposed. The cool thing is I've realized once again that the community I live with feels like a family because I'm not afraid to be around them. It's funny, we went out together today to a church we don't usually go to, and after had a very California-style Mexican potluck. We hung out and small-talked with the people around us. But we also huddled together a bit, kind of like penguins. I think we just like each other's company. That's what being a family is like. It's not that we're all that much alike, I think it's just the fact that when you work and toil away and live with people, you begin to wear different grooves into each other until you're a bit like a big puzzle. There are so many friends that I have like this all around the world, people I've lived with and worked with. We've worn grooves into each other. We fit together in ways that feel empty when we're apart. It's sad. I miss those other friends, the ones I'm far away from now. 
But it's good to know that there are a lot of people out there that I wouldn't mind feeling ugly around. More than a few people have actually seen me break down and freak out. Some people are here with me when I'm so close to breaking down right now, when the stress of having a new baby and waiting for important test results are getting to me, when I can't move my head properly, then everything hurts and it's driving me crazy. I remember about seven years ago I heard someone say that life is made of sitting and standing. Maybe most of the time you are standing, but sometimes you just have to sit down for a while. And having close friends and a strong community is about the seamlessness that happens when other people can stand up for you while you're sitting. Everyone has their times when they are unable to stand. It's so beautiful to have friends who will be standing around you, especially when you are just sitting there in the dirt, watching ants and eating grass, waiting for your knees to stop shaking. March 12th. 2006. Not cancer. Not cancer. Pete the surgeon walked into the room the other day and found five of us waiting. The littlest could barely hold up his head. I've got good news, he said. It's a good thing to hear first, unless, of course, he meant, I've got good news, we're going to be seeing a lot of each other. Or, I've got good news, more money for me. But he said, I've got good news. It's a benign follicular adenoma. And we all, except the youngest three, breathed a sigh of relief. No more surgery, no radioactive iodine, no synthroid, no six weeks of hell. Thyroid cancer is supposed to be one of the easiest to treat, but you still have to drink radioactive iodine, which makes you radioactive, for 24 hours, you have to sit in your hospital room and only the radiation specialists can come near you in their special suits. And so you have 24 hours of solitude, except you can't bring your laptop because it will become radioactive and you'll have to throw it away. So that sounds pretty much like misery to me. Then for 10 days, you can't be with your kids, including your newborn. I'm very, very glad that I don't have to go through all of that. I'm full of thanks and praise that I will be able to keep nursing Leaf and that I won't be crying every day that I can't see my kids. I'm so glad that now I can let all of the worry go and just recuperate, wait for my neck to heal, feel better and better as my baby gets older, and hopefully start sleeping a little bit longer at night. Here's a confession, though. I'm just the teensiest bit disappointed that I won't be able to write about being radioactive. That is so sick. What is wrong with me? In other news, we've been having freak snowstorms for the last couple of days. I honestly didn't know that it even could snow here. The weather has changed its mind every few minutes. One second it's raining, then hailing, then these big soft snowflakes are drifting down, and suddenly it's hard rain again. Good weather for community rounds of killer bunnies. It's a card game that makes us all mad at each other. Leaf has crossed the threshold into adorable baby country. He smiles and laughs and lies on his back cooing. More than either of the other kids when they were his age, he seems to really want to talk to me. His little face is so intent as though if he just thought hard enough, he could make some real words come out. He loves the strangest things. 
A dark sock hanging off the edge of the white metal posts on the bunk bed gets half an hour of cooing and smiling out of him. We call the lamps his friends because he loves to talk to them and listen as they talk back to him. Who are you talking to, Leaf? we say. Are you talking to your friends again? Life is good. My neck is healing and I can move it again. I don't have cancer and my family is amazing. Our house will be done by the end of the month and we'll have more space. The fact that it's snowing can't change the fact that it's the middle of March and spring has to come sooner or later. So why do I feel so depressed? March 25th, 2006. Now that Kai has flown full swing into make-believe, life is always interesting and frustrating sometimes too. We may be eating dinner in a perfectly normal fashion, which for us these days is with up to 10 other people on couches in the big house, and suddenly it takes a turn. Kai, please eat your spaghetti. Dinosaurs don't eat spaghetti. Okay. What do dinosaurs eat? Leaves. Well, if you can pretend you are a dinosaur, you can pretend your spaghetti is leaves. Lots of things are like this. If I tell my three-year-old that he can't stand on the arm of the couch, he'll explain that there are alligators in the water, and if he gets off, they'll eat him. Obviously, I don't just let him get away with all his reasoning. He will eat his spaghetti, and he will stop standing on the arm of the couch, but it's not arguing to him. He really gets so caught up in his imagination that he finds it hard to break out. Almost all day I'm saying, Earth to Kai, focus, put your jacket on, put your shoes on, let's put the toys away. Hello? Hmm, this reminds me of someone. I can't for the life of me think who. Oh. So then I was thinking that we should find that number and make sure we call her back. Hey, are you listening to me, honey? Hmm? Chinua, did you hear what I just said? Sorry, I was gone for a minute there. Where did you go? Fighting aliens. It's like what Madeline Langle says. We are made up of all our ages. I'm a nine-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 25-year-old. Good to remember when I feel like pitching a fit in the middle of the night when Leaf won't go back to sleep for two hours. Hi, this is The Hindsight reading through this episode. Here are some of the thoughts I had as I was looking back and, yeah, thinking about that younger sister self of mine, wondering what kinds of things I would say to her now. So here are some of my reactions. The first is a big one. It is, hello, autism. This is what I would want to tell my younger self. Or, I don't know, maybe not want to tell her, because I do feel like I found this out at the right time in my life. But um, this is from 2005. And in 2009, I took a test for Asperger's, and I came back with an 89% like score, testing score, saying, you have this. And um, now Asperger's has been brought into the larger family of autism. And since then, so let's see, that's for the last um, 13 years, I guess, it has been a part of my journey. Um, knowing that I am autistic, knowing that 
this is part of who I am. It's not something I write about all that much. Uh, you may read it between the lines. I do have a couple of blog entries that where I've talked about autism. It is interesting because I am self-diagnosed still, which within the autism community is something that's very much understood and accepted because it is hard to get a diagnosis, especially as a 41-year-old woman. Um, it's undiagnosed in people like me. There is still a four-to-one ratio, I think, of male-to-female diagnosis. And scientists are starting to see, or medical doctors are starting to see that most likely that ratio is not because of an actual disparity between men and women with autism, but between diagnostics and autism. So for me, it takes um, shape in a lot of different ways. Uh, one reason that I really resonated with this um, diagnosis is because I still had a lot of unexplained anxiety uh, in 2009. I still had a lot of unexplained panic attacks and unexplained things in my life that um, didn't seem to come from some kind of trauma or something, but were just a part of my actual makeup as a person. Um, and autism helped to explain a lot of that, and it helped to frame who I was in a way that was not um, only like sickness-based, but was difference-based. And that was really helpful for me because I see autism as a disability for certain um, this is my, me personally. I, uh, lots of different people have lots of different ways of thinking about autism. Um, I see myself as having very big issues in the world that I have to overcome. I often will have the experience of telling people that I have autism and then them saying, or that I am autistic, I should say, and then them saying, oh, I don't see you that way. It's very, very common for me to have that response. And People don't realize, they, they think of it as something that's like um, maybe kind of bad or something they need to reassure me about. <laughs> and um, so they say that out of the goodness of their heart, I can tell. But what they don't realize, and this is often what I will say to people, because I speak about this openly, mostly in the sense that I think sometimes there's, there's a sort of barrier um, where people want to say, well, mental illness is over there and spirituality is over here. And I live a, a life that's a spiritual life in a spiritual community. And I kind of always want to just throw it open. Every time there's some sort of idea that you can not have any sort of illness or any sort of disability when you are a spiritual person, I always just want to like blow that away. So I usually do that by talking about my own experience. So what I say to people in that moment is, well, the me that you know is the me that's been on medication for 16 years now, has also been taking two different kinds of herbs for many years, is religious about sleep, exercise, diet, um, and still has meltdowns and still has days when I literally can't do anything or get out of bed. Um, I'm doing much, much better because I'm learning how to treat myself as an autistic person, which means that if I'm overwhelmed, I need to shut things down a little bit. I need to go for a long scooter ride, listening to music. I need to lie in a dark room instead of treating myself like a robot who should be able to just get it together. Yeah, I do things that are that are good for autism, that are soothing things that are good for someone with a lot of sensitivities. And then the other thing is that 
I live in a fairly autistic friendly place, but most of our life is almost entirely outside, which means that my eyes are filled with green spaces and all the things that are soothing to me. We don't have big grocery stores in town. Uh, (laughs) So what I'm, the reason this is hindsight is because yeah, right in the first little bit of reading this, I read about having a panic attack in a bed, bath and beyond. And these are just the kinds of things that would happen to me all the time before I realized that this was because of sensory overload because of autism. Yeah, so that's one thing I would mention. I'll talk about this more as we go on. This is actually one of the first places that I've really gone into it. Um, But yeah, as it comes up, I will talk about it more because I think it's important. And once again, I feel like this sense of loving my little sister wanting to be a good friend to her. And that includes talking about her full experience. Okay, as, as, as I was going through this, I found this section that was highlighted six, 76 times just in this one ebook, um, i.e. the one that comes from Amazon. So there's other ones as well out there in the world. The, the section says, sometimes I get so absolutely sick of my own brain all the writhing and complaining, the neurosis and the litany of put-downs that come toward me. I get sick of battling myself, my fears, my shame. It's good to know that my heart is always safe with God because there is nothing waiting at the other end of my confessions but love. So this is so true still. Like, I am so thankful that in my faith, I have this sense that when I speak out the worst things or the things that are the hardest for me to admit or to be in, that there is nothing waiting for me but love. I'm so thankful for that. I wrote a little bit about friends, about what friends have done, and I just wanted to add that my whole life has been held up by friends and that, you know, we talk about the hard things sometimes, but I think it's really important to also speak about the way that people around us lift us up and to acknowledge it, to really let yourself feel it, to feel the friendships, even when they're friendships in the past or they're friendships that feel distant, just to acknowledge that those things happened because all those things are little parts of who God is and what God does and just the way love is shared around around people and friendships. Doctor, the doctor, Dr. Pete, I called him, I think, we still quote that doctor, Tanua and I, we still quote that doctor and we laugh and laugh. Like it's been so long. It's been over 16 years now. And we still are hysterical over the some of the things he said to us. I get into it more, I think, in the next episode. But he was hilarious. I'll, I'll, I'll say more about that later. But he, he just had this way of being utterly friendly and saying the most outrageous things ever. So yeah, we still quote him. We still, he, he gives us just the gift. He's the gift that keeps on giving. I wrote about Paul watching this lovely day over and over again. Oh, he used to run in and turn it on and then run back out. It was so great. I loved it so much. I miss Paul. He was quirky and wonderful. Oh man, yeah. Reading the whole story about that time of having no water or power and then nearly ready to have a baby and trying to figure out at the time we were trying to figure out like can we have it at home would we be okay in the bathroom having the baby uh (laughs) just like not sure of what to do in that situation we ended up going up on a day that it was open and just not coming back down 
Um, so going by going up, I mean, we went north, we went up to Fortuna area and stayed up there until the baby came. And yeah, he came well. He, we had a good birth and he's just always been such an amazing guy. That's Leafy. Now he just turned 16. I had postpartum depression with all my babies. So as I'm reading this, this one episode or this one episode, this one entry blog post. Yeah. Just my young self wondering, hoping that it won't come again. All of that. I'm sorry, little one, but you do, <laughs> you do have it again. And then you have it again and again, but it doesn't last forever. And yeah, it's, I read about it. I read about wanting a year of freedom, all of that. I think the humbling thing about reading through these entries is the feeling that I'm the same. And in some ways I am, in some ways I, I'm not. I'm older. I have a lot more compassion for myself, a lot lower expectations for myself um, as far as being a robot person who doesn't need rest. But um, yeah, it is kind of weird that it's the same in some ways too. I still do want a year of freedom, actually. Let's let make that happen. I wrote about a book I was writing. I never did publish that book. It was my first sort of sketch try at a book. But look, it did happen. I have pl published many books now. So all those early frustrating days when I couldn't get my writing done, they coalesced into something beautiful and shiny. And I've written many books now. So, And I'm still in that moment where I... Sometimes I have trouble getting the writing down, you know, but it keeps happening somehow or other. Oh, I wrote about meeting a man at the beach and going back to his rammed earth house. And I love that memory because it was such a beautiful, um, very like, I would say, forward kind of day where we got to go out and just follow our whims so we met a man he invited us back to his house we went it was like this cool connection and like beautiful little thing where we're just following the thread following our noses that's still my favorite kind of day and I just remember in that time because we had a lot of responsibility and a lot of new responsibility that felt sort of overwhelming and just how beautiful that was I love the memory of that day and then I have wrote about Valentine's Day, and I just want to say, dear younger Rachel, just put that to rest. Valentine's Day is never going to be a thing for you. I can say that safely, and it's really okay. It doesn't have to be. It's all good. You don't need to celebrate Valentine's Day. It doesn't mean anything, <laughs> and it's never going to be something that's like the thing for you. So just, um, hey, put it to rest. I wrote a little about Christy, and uh, you probably know if you've been following that I am still good friends with her. She is still one of the closest people in my heart, one of the bravest people I know. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful to me to read old writings about her because it just reminds me of how long I've known her and how much I've loved her, how long I've loved her. I also wrote about Kenya starting her locks, and she still has them. Uh, maybe not for much longer but she still has them. So yeah, that's pretty cool. That means she's had them for nearly 16 years. I wrote just a throwaway line about loving the movie 
for like being in the movie 28 days i think i said i looked like i had given myself a tracheotomy just a little surgery humor for you but anyway you guys i love that movie i love the movie 28 days it's so good i love it i love alan tudyk in it oh my gosh he's so funny yeah who can say anything about the fact that the answer was that we did not have cancer that i did not have cancer that was huge and big and good news and i'm still very thankful for that i still have half a thyroid and it still keeps ticking along i get it checked every year or so but it seems okay i sometimes have you know hoped that there was some sort of thyroid thing going on because getting older and metabolism's slowing down i'm like surely this is a thyroid issue because i only have half a thyroid and then when i get it tested they're like oh no your thyroid is fine and i'm like oh i guess it's just normal normal aging process and then i wrote a little about madeline langle and the the thing that we're made up of all our ages and i just want to say that we are still i'm still made up of all my ages and you are made up of all your ages and you are beautiful and and yeah you're a little child and you're a wise person and even Kai, who was the one saying that he couldn't eat because he was a dinosaur. Kai is still that little boy inside, even though now he's 19 years old and he still pushes boundaries. And with that, I'm signing off on this episode and I want to say I love you. And if you like, you can keep following along. Thank you. Hey, so thanks for following along. And if you would like to support this show more or just to get to know more about me you can check me out on patreon.com forward slash journey mama you can also find out more about me on my blog journeymama.com you can follow me on instagram at at journey mama or on twitter at at journey mama which i'm not very much on twitter i must confess and yeah Check out all my books. Um, If you go to journeymama.com, there's a handy link with all my books right there. This podcast is sponsored by my Patreon followers. So thank you so much for all your giving and all you do to make these things happen. I am very, very thankful for you. 